clap their hands for you. Oceans, they dance for you. Yeah. Lord God, thank you for Vince and for Michael and for William, Michael Gunger, who wrote that song, and their ability, God, to help us lift our voice in praise to you. And I just think that song is so beautiful, and yet that's just a faint reflection of your beauty, Lord God, and that you are the Holy One, the different one, different from what we normally experience in this world. So God, I thank you that you are holy and I thank you that you are making us holy too because you're our dad. So in Jesus' name, dad, we thank you and praise you and ask you to help us preach. Amen. Amen. Hey, the, um, the sanctuary feels off kilter. All the weight is on this side. And, uh, so anyway, we're gonna, let's stand and read the psalm like we did last week, okay? We did that last week. And then after we're done reading, you can slide to the middle or whatever. Uh, find a centrally located uh, place. But this is, you know, we're preaching through the psalms, and this is Psalm 2. But we're not preaching in order, so we preach a whole bunch of psalms. But uh, let's read it together, okay? When I lower my hand. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. You, uh, you may be seated. No, I, I don't know about you, but I find a, a lot of things kind of weird about that, and, and one thing rather disturbing. It's weird that the sun's wrath is quickly kindled. When Scripture says that uh, God is slow to anger, same word, slow to wrath, and abounding in hased, that's re relentless love. The son's wrath is weird. He's angry at those who don't find happiness in him. For happy are those who take refuge in him. That's what the word blessed, blessed means. It's weird how David says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So that's not like your garden variety fear, right? It's weird that although the nations rage against him, the son is told to ask for those very nations as his inheritance, his heritage, and then told that he will break those very nations, the peoples, like a potter's vessel. You know, Jerusalem and her kings uh, uh, in Jeremiah, we find out that they're to be broken like a potter's vessel in the valley of Gehenna, and then the revelation, we find out that we're Jerusalem. So that's all kind of weird. Maybe it's most weird that Israel keeps singing this song. Most scholars argue that this psalm is an enthronement psalm, which means that this was the song of choice in the temple when they would uh, crown a, a new king. In 2 Samuel 7, David wants to build God a house, and God says to David, David, I'll make you a house, 
For I'll exalt your son after you, and he will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he to me a, a son. That would be like a son of David and a son of God. God had told Abraham that he was blessed to be a blessing to all the nations of the world through his seed, through this promised blessing, this promised this promised son. The prophets even prophesied that all nations would flow into Jerusalem. So the Jews expected it to happen through this son of David, this, this uh, king, the, the Messiah, the, the anointed. Well, it looked like things were going according to plan for a little while, if you know the story, because David's son was uh, Solomon, and Solomon built the, the temple, the house. He expanded the kingdom a bit, but in just a generation, the kingdom split. So for 400 years, Judah would crown king, sing this song, and hope that the next king would be the prophesied Messiah. That means the anointed, the, the anointed one. In 589 B.C., Jerusalem fell, and in 70 A.D., it was utterly leveled by the Romans. That means that for a thousand years, this psalm was like a bad joke. Until sometime around 33 A.D., when some folks began singing it in a new way. And of course, you know that I'm talking about people that called themselves Christians. You know, this is one of the most referenced psalms in all of the New Testament. It's quoted twice in the book of Acts, twice in the book of Hebrews, as if it had already happened. It's referenced three times in the Revelation as something that has happened, is happening, and will happen. And yet, it's, it's no wonder to me then that the Jews uh, rejected the Messiah when he rode into Jerusalem and hung on the tree. See, it's just, it's just weird how their expectations turned out to be so incongruent with reality. They expected uh, so much more, <laughs> or maybe so much less than, than Jesus. So for some, Jesus was a tragedy, and yet for all, he will prove to be just the opposite. Psalm 2, verse 1, why do the nations rage, asks David. The New Testament says David wrote this, by the way. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. David asks, why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot? Why did Hitler murder six million, six million Jews? Why does Israel keep Palestinians behind a wall in the Middle East? Why do you all get so worked up about the next election? Why do the principalities and powers, the world rulers of this present darkness, the people of this world plot and rage? Answer, they hate the Lord and his Messiah. They want to burst their bonds and cast away their restraints. What restraint has God put on Adolf Hitler? Or Benjamin Netanyahu? Or Donald Trump? Or me? Or you? Well, how about a law written on our hearts, a word whispered in the depths of our soul, love me and love your neighbor the way I loved you. Don't strive to be first. Choose to be last in the service of love. Don't exalt yourself. Humble yourself. Is that not the most challenging restraint placed upon the arrogant human soul constantly seeking conquest and power? Verse four, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Does God laugh at Adolf Hitler? 
Did Jesus laugh at Pontius Pilate, King Herod, Caiaphas, and Caesar? Uh, Laugh, even as he allows Jerusalem to be destroyed and for them to take his life on the tree in the garden. Last week we talked about Jesus weeping in the pit of sorrow. Did he weep in the pit as he laughed from the throne? That's weird. Oh, that is weird. But this I find troubling, this, this question. I think this is the really troubling thing. Um, does God laugh at me? <laughs> Am I one of those that plans and plots in vain and God laughs? The Hebrew word, sechach, is, is translated laugh in verse four. It appears in various forms. It's usually translated laugh or play. It can even mean making out, one verse in Genesis. (laughs) Laugh or play or sometimes mock. Laog, which appears at the end of the verse, is almost always mock or, or scorn. Does God mock me? Well, does he laugh at me? Does he hold me in derision? Because Psalm 2 seems to say that he does. You know Psalm 2 is quoted in Revelation 19 where Jesus rides a white horse with a robe dipped in blood and rules the nations with a rod of iron as he tramples the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. And then the birds of the air, they're called the birds of the air, they come and eat the flesh of kings and captains and all people. Go read it. All people. See? I think we each want to be king. That's the nature of the flesh. Each time we exalt ourselves, exert our will over God's will, we're trying to burst the bonds of love and become our own ruler and authority. And Paul tells us that Jesus will destroy every rule and authority and power. And of course he laughs at every power that would exalt itself against God. He is God's power that upholds all things, and it would appear that he's fixing to laugh us to scorn. Well, laughter is a, is a pretty mysterious thing. Amongst all God's creatures, only people r- really laugh, laugh or, or, or weep, and, and philosophers Philosophers struggle to know why. According to Wikipedia and the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, did a little research, there are three classic theories on laughter, on why we laugh. One, the superiority theory. Two, the relief theory. And three, the incongruity theory. Uh, Plato, like a lot of ancient philosophers, seemed to be offended by laughter and, and warned against its maliciousness. Rene Descartes warned uh, against derision and scorn as a sort of joy mingled with hatred, with hatred. Many religious orders have argued that this is why we should avoid laughter altogether, for it's all a form of derision. In fact, laughter belongs to God, they say, because he is superior. He will not be mocked, but he's the one that's to do all the mocking, they say. That's the superiority theory of laughter. We laugh because we enjoy noticing that we're superior. (laughs) Is that why God laughs? Gentlemen, in exactly five days, we will be $100 billion richer. That's how Dr. Evil laughs. And I am kind of convinced that's how Satan laughs or pretends to laugh. In the words of J.R. Tolkien, the shadow can only mock, it cannot make. The problem with making fun is that you don't actually make fun. You end up making misery 
If I laugh at others because I feel superior, I'm immediately filled with fear that they're gonna really soon start laughing at me and then laughter simply becomes an act that I use or a weapon that I employ. Satan laughs, but he's never known fun or joy, let alone ecstasy. The superiority explains evil laughter, but not all laughter. For instance, it it can't explain why a person would laugh at at himself. One morning in college, I was frantically studying in one of the study carols, these round tube things in the atrium at the University of Colorado, and, and I burped just a little bit. And, and suddenly, the air inside the, that cubicle, it filled with smoke, and my throat burned, and my eyes, they caught on fire. I had just read some stories about spontaneous human combustion, and so immediately I concluded that I was on fire, and I was instantly paralyzed with fear. And yet, in another instant, I realized that the burning had stopped, and at the same instant, I remembered that in my hurry that morning, I had taken a tetra- tetracycline pill for, for acne and taken it without water. Suddenly, I realized it wasn't smoke that filled the the cubicle and and burned my throat and my eyes. It was burped up zip medicine. It was a pill that I had uh, taken, lodged in my throat, and then dissolved. And in that instant, I also started laughing. I began laughing hysterically out loud. I fell out of the cubicle on the floor, and I was basically inviting everybody else to laugh. I mean, what a bizarre sight. And then laughter. The second theory of laughter promoted by folks like Sigmund Freud Freud, is is the relief theory. It's the idea that laughter is a sudden relief or release of nervous energy. The the thought that I was on fire did make me a bit nervous. And the realization that it was zip medicine instead of spontaneous human combustion was a, a relief. But you don't have to be nervous to laugh. God laughs. Think he's nervous? The third theory is called the incongruity theory, and I think it encapsulates the other two. It's the idea that we laugh at the perception of something incongruous, particularly the incongruity between two perceptions of reality. Spontaneous human combustion in a study carol at CU is a different reality than burped up zip medicine. If the incongruity is resolved in a pleasant way, we laugh. It's it's a comedy. If the incongruity is unresolved or or resolved in a negative way, if it turns out that I really am on fire, well, I hope you would weep and wail just a little bit. That's a tragedy. And so the difference between tragedy and comedy is is a little faith in how the situation might be resolved or not resolved. And so you see, it's really no wonder that so many comedians end up committing suicide. Have you ever noticed that? Because all day long they deal with incongruity, the incongruous, but without a little faith, comedy becomes tragedy. But maybe with a little faith, tragedy could become comedy. Dr. Evil laughed, but I bet you laughed at Dr. Evil. And I bet it wasn't because you scorned Mike Myers or or Dr. Evil. You laughed at the incongruity between his perception of reality and your own perception of reality. That's the way the whole movie works. Well, God's perception of reality must be very, very different than our own perception of reality. But but according to Psalm 2, he laughs us to scorn. He holds us in derision as if he wants to destroy us or at least our perception of reality. So for powerful and wealthy Americans who consider themselves to be the kings of the world, Psalm 2 kind of reads like a tragedy. But for poor, powerless, and exiled Jews, perhaps it read more like a comedy. For one day, Pharaoh, King Nebuchadnezzar, and Hitler would kiss the feet of the king of the Jews. Comedy. And tragedy. I mean, maybe it's both, but but which is the deepest? Does reality end in tears, or does reality end in, in laughter? 
And yet still there's this question, why would a good father want to laugh anyone to scorn? Last week I asked, why would a good father hide his face? And then we remembered playing peekaboo. If I ask why would a good father laugh at his own beloved children, well, I am flooded with more memories than I can even begin to convey. When my boys were little, they were always doing something to make me laugh. But it would offend them if they saw me laugh. One day when Becky was little and had some disagreement with me, in other words, when I was violating her will with my will, (laughs) in other words, when she was being disciplined, she went to the phone and she called my mom. She got my mom on the phone and she said, oh my, your son is being bad and you need to get right over here and spank him. He needs a spanking. (laughs) Do you ever think God is being bad? Every time we sin, aren't we arguing that God's will is bad? We've judged God's will with our will and said it's bad. Do you think God laughs? I laughed and laughed at Becky, but I didn't let her her know I was laughing. But now she laughs. Coleman laughs at how he used to eat dirt and get in trouble for eating dirt in the backyard and say, you can't eat dirt and you have dirt... He laughs. John even laughs at the flaming toilet of death. My mom, she just passed away, and I'm just beginning, I'm just beginning to laugh at the stories you used to tell about how my little sister Rachel would defend me against the bullies, bullies up the street in, in our front yard. I, I'm beginning to laugh at myself and, and my cowardice. Well, I, I laughed at my kids, and now my kids are starting to laugh with me at themselves. It's what we talk about at dinner on Thanksgiving. <laughs> It's the very substance of all of our very best stories. Every night when the children were little, we'd say prayers. And every night without fail, John would end his prayer with this statement. And thank you, thank you God for Chuck E. Cheese's. Amen. And every night Elizabeth would end her prayers with this statement. And thank you God that I know everything in the world. Amen. After about a a half a year of this or so, I remember thinking, you know, this view of reality may not pan out for Elizabeth in the future. (laughs) And if I were a good father, I would help her change her perception of reality. The biblical word for that is repentance. So one day she said to me, Daddy, I said, yes, honey, what is it? Do killer whales live in lakes? And I said, "Uh, honey, No, killer whales do not live in lakes. And she said, yes, they do. And I thought, okay, here we go, here we go. (laughs) And I said, no, Elizabeth, killer whales live in the ocean. They do not live in lakes. And she said, yes, they do. And I said, no, they don't. Yes, they do. No, they don't. And and we debated this intensely with tears, frustration, and, and fury. I would have laughed out loud, but I realized that that would have just been too mean. So I got angry. I can't tell you the number of times Susan and I would get angry at the kids because we needed to. But then we'd go into the next room and just laugh hysterically. See, our wrath was more merciful than our laughter. I finally said to Elizabeth, I said, no, Elizabeth, look, I'm done, that's it, enough, Elizabeth, I, I'm not gonna talk about it anymore, killer whales do not live in lakes. And then she screamed at me, well, I'm calling Poppy. Poppy's been a pastor longer than you. That was my dad. So he went to the phone, I said, fine, you go ahead, call Poppy, and I prayed that my dad would speak the truth and not be seduced by the outrageous cuteness of my three-year-old daughter. She called, she asked him, and praise God, he said, no, Elizabeth, Killer whales don't live in lakes. And at that, there was whaling. Killer whaling. I mean, you would have thought that Elizabeth had just experienced an absolute tragedy, and in a way, she did. She learned that she was not the king of the universe. It was a tragedy. But now it's a comedy. (laughs) 
and she loves to laugh with us. I, I think she actually enjoys being my little girl more than the king of the universe. She laughs with us at herself, for her true self was getting trapped in her false self, and her true self is happy. 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we would be called the little children of God, and that's not just what we're called. That is what we really are. What we shall be has not yet appeared to us, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him. King of the universe. One day when Elizabeth was about four, and we were visiting my parents, she said, Daddy, can I have some gum? And I said, uh, no. I said no because Elizabeth was addicted to gum. It wasn't just that she wanted to chew it all the time. She would chew it and swallow it and then want more. Addicted. She begged me and I said, honey, I'll give you a piece of gum if you listen to what I have to say to you and you chew it with me. You need to chew it with me. I remember I took her up to my old bedroom and we sat on my old bed and I said, Elizabeth, I can't give you more gum if you keep swallowing the gum because I don't think it's made to be swallowed and I don't think this is very good for you if you just eat gum all, all, all day. And, and I said, uh, look, I'll give it to you if you sit here, chew it with me, uh, chew the gum. And, and she agreed and I handed her the gum. She put it in her mouth. She looked at me with those big, beautiful brown eyes, started chewing and then she, she began to preach. She, she said this, I, I know, Daddy. I know, it's, it's bad to swallow your gum. I know, Daddy, because that's bad for you. And because I'm a, a big girl, I know that I shouldn't swallow my gum, and so I can chew gum. Uh, Becky's a little girl, she's only two, and she can't have gum because she'd swallow her gum. But I'm a big girl, I'm big like John who can chew his gum. And so, Daddy, I'm gonna chew the gum, and, and you'll be proud of me because you can count on me. I only chew the gum, I think, because I'm a big girl, Daddy. And the sermon lasted for about a minute. She looked up at me, smiled ear to ear, and I said, honey, where's your gum? <laughs> and then I watched her face as her perception of reality was utterly shattered by this cold, hard reality that she had, in fact, swallowed her gum. <laughs> as she told me that she would never swallow her gum. This look of absolute horror came over her face. She literally threw herself across my lap, openly wailing, killer wailing, I swallowed my gum! I'm not a big girl! I'm a little girl! I'm never, ever, 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 ever gonna be able to chew gum! And then she just started sobbing and wailing and lamenting. It was an absolute tragedy for Elizabeth king of the world, big girl, gum chewer, an absolute tragedy. But for me, it was a comedy and a tragedy. A tragedy for whatever you do to Elizabeth, you do to me. Even if it's Elizabeth doing the thing to Elizabeth. I cried for her, <laughs> or at least I tried. I, I cried for her, I cried with her, and I cried in her. I mean, it was like we were both thrown into that pit of sorrow that we talked about last, last week. I, I cried with her, for her, and in her. But yeah, I did laugh at her, deep inside. I laughed at her, or at least her opinion of herself, her false self. And, and I laughed at her gum addiction. Do you suppose that God laughs at your addictions? I mean that he suffers them, of course, but he also laughs at them? You know, I was 99.99% sure that one day Elizabeth would be able to chew gum and not swallow. I don't mean to brag, but these days, I don't even have to ask Elizabeth if she swallowed her gum. She, I, she, like, you're free, Elizabeth, to just chew all the gum you want. We don't even, we don't even talk about it. I, I'm not worried now. And I wasn't worried then. 
Do you think God is worried about you? Or your addictions? We see, I didn't laugh because I was relieving nervous tension, and I didn't laugh because I felt superior. I mean, I didn't laugh because she thought she was the king of the world, and I proved to be the king of the world. The truth is that she is the king of my world. She and her sister and her two brothers will inherit everything I own, my entire kingdom, the great empire. They will inherit it all, and I would have gladly taken a bullet for her that day, even though she swallowed her gum. I didn't laugh because I was superior or because I was nervous. I laughed because of the incongruity between her perception of reality and reality as it truly was and as it truly is. I laughed at Elizabeth uh, telling me how capable she was and I laughed at Elizabeth telling me how she would never, ever, ever be able to chew gum. I laughed at Elizabeth the success and I laughed at Elizabeth the failure because they are both the same ridiculous illusion. I, I laughed at the incongruity between how Elizabeth perceived herself and what I knew her to be. I laughed. Not because Elizabeth was less than she imagined. I laughed because she was far more than she could yet begin to perceive. I laugh because this tragedy was just a drop in an ocean of absolute comedy, divine comedy. I laughed at her ridiculous little ego. Her ego told her that if she could chew gum, she'd be really something. She'd be a big girl, king of the world and impressive to her daddy. But I knew that she was already king of my world and utterly impressive to me, and that had absolutely nothing to do with her ability to chew gum. I laughed to myself, at herself, knowing that one day she'd laugh with me at herself at Thanksgiving dinner, and if she wanted, after dinner, we could both chew gum in freedom. <laughs> so does God laugh? Well. No and yes. Immanuel Kant and Arthur Schopenhauer both developed the incongruity theory of humor. But in my opinion, the most brilliant formulation of the theory comes from the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. You may remember, because we preached on it, that Kierkegaard divided existence into three spheres. Do you remember that when we were preaching through Ecclesiastes, we talked about this. The first is the aesthetic sphere, when one simply takes and consumes the good like uh, fruit from, from a tree, like a rich man buys houses, or an addict drink, drinks wine. The second sphere is called the ethical sphere, when one tries to earn the good like a Boy Scout tries to earn merit badges, or a Pharisee tries to earn the kingdom. You use your knowledge of the good to make yourself good in order to purchase the good. Third is the religious sphere, and by that, Kierkegaard meant, meant something good. He didn't mean it in the negative way. It, it's, the religious fear is the realization that the good is an absolute gift. Not to be taken or earned, but to be trusted and received. In other words, it's grace through faith, trust. Kierkegaard argued that, that irony, this thing called irony, is the boundary between the first stage and the second stage. It marks the incongruity then between the tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees. So we say things like this. It's ironic that that famous pastor would preach about family values and then sleep with a hooker, and we laugh. But it's a nervous laugh. It's an evil laugh. Kierkegaard argued that irony marks the boundary between licentiousness and legalism, but something else marks the boundary between legalism and the revelation of grace, and that's humor. He wrote, humor is the last stage of existential awareness before faith. 
And he argued that Christianity is the most humorous view of life in world history. Humor is the birth of faith. Kierkegaard's paragon of faith was Abraham and Sarah who gave birth to Isaac. That's Isaac from Sahak, meaning laughter. Isaac, the promised seed, is literally in Hebrew, he laughs. People will cite Psalm 2, like when I was studying for this, and they'll say, see, God's a tyrant. He has an evil laugh, and they'll talk about Psalm 2. And we all seem to forget that Isaac, Isaac, means laughter. And the first instance of the word laugh in all the scriptures, Genesis 17, when Abraham laughs at God's word. Abraham, you're going to have a son, 100 years old, and he laughs. Genesis 18, second place. Sarah overhears the promise, promise of God given to her husband, and she laughs. God says, why'd you laugh? Sarah, why'd you laugh? Explain your theory of laughter. And she says, I didn't laugh. And God says, no, you laughed. At me and my word. Sarah laughed, but God gets the last laugh. His word is the last laugh. Genesis 21, Sarah gives birth to Isaac. That is, he laughs and she she exclaims, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will will laugh over me. In other words, they're going to laugh at me and I'm going to laugh with them. Then verse 12, God says this, through Isaac, through Esau, through laughter, shall your offspring be named I think that means that if you want to be a child of Abraham, you can only get there through laughter. Not through works of the flesh, but only by grace through faith. Genesis 22, God says this incredible thing to Abraham. He says, take he laughs, take Esau, whom you love, and offer him to me. (laughs) Can you imagine? I think you can imagine. Because God has asked similar things of you. Take laughter and surrender it to me. Take the promised blessing and surrender it to me. Take your loved one and surrender them to me. Well, I, I hope that you see that God didn't want to take laughter from Abraham. He wanted to give laughter to Abraham forever and ever and ever without end, because he is the end. Laughter is the end. What God wanted Abraham to sacrifice was his ego. The illusion that he could create, save, redeem, and and justify the promised blessing, that he could make laughter, when in fact God was making him with laughter. So Abraham laid his Esau down, and Abraham received Esau back. Do you remember why? The God-man stopped his hand and provided a lamb, a, a grown lamb, a ram. Abraham lost laughter, received laughter back, and is still laughing. Abraham lost his life and received his life back and will live forever without end, for life is the end. Life is a gift, and Jesus is the life. Jesus is the promised blessing. Through Esau will your offspring be named, said God. Offspring is singular in Hebrew. It literally means seed, and that seed is Jesus. Through laughter will Jesus be named. Through laughter you will come to call on God as salvation. Yeshua, Jesus. Acts 13.33, listen to this. Paul preaches about the resurrection of Jesus, and he says that it fulfilled what was written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That means that the promised seed was born when Jesus rose from the dead. It means that laughter was born in in the place of the deepest sorrow. Perhaps laughter is Jesus being born in your place of sorrow today. Now, now is the day of salvation, says Scripture. Jesus said, you will weep and lament, but your sorrow will turn into joy like that of a mother who gives birth. Laughter is man's humble reaction, writes Karl Barth, to the amazing and ridiculous fact of man being a recipient of God's honor. Laughter is the closest thing to the grace of God. 
So what is it that keeps us from laughing? Isn't it our pride? What is it that kept Elizabeth from laughing? Well, it was her need to know everything in the world and her idea that she could make herself good by chewing gum. It was her little ego. It was her desire to justify herself. But once she realized that she had always been justified, she could laugh and enjoy Thanksgiving dinner. What is it that keeps Peter Hyatt from laughing? I, I think it's the idea that I have to preach a good sermon to make myself good so that the good would love me. You see, that's the self that think it, thinks it has to create, save, redeem, and justifies itself. That's the self that continually wants to exalt itself. That's my ego. That's my old earthen vessel. That's this body of death, as Paul calls it. That's the, the pit of sorrow. It's not bad news that God would dash it to pieces like a potter's vessel, because it is the potter's vessel. Potter also means maker, uh, the potter who's capable of making new vessels. You see, maybe it's good news that Jesus might even laugh it to scorn. You know, the party starts once I begin to laugh it to scorn with him. Once I stop trying to justify myself because I realize that I'm eternally justified. Once I stop trying to exalt myself and begin to laugh at myself and notice that God has already exalted me, he exalts the humble, and I think he calls it laughter. He just enjoys doing it. Once I stop taking myself so seriously because God, my daddy, has taken me so seriously, that's when the party really starts. Once I stop taking this world so seriously and begin to laugh with the lamb standing on the throne. You know, I die with him. and I rise with him, laughing. In Acts 4.25, Peter and John quote Psalm 2. It would have been just after they were retained by the temple guard and possibly kept in the sacred pit that we preached about last week. They preached, if you remember, the temple guard threw them in prison just as they'd likely thrown Jesus in that very same prison Caiaphas uh, then the next day threatened them but released them because he didn't know how to punishment, punish them. They, they immediately found their friends, quoted Psalm 2 about the way in which the kings of the earth rage against the Lord and his Messiah. Then they thanked God that all this persecution was going exactly according to plan. Their sorrow turned into joy. The house they gathered in began to shake. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and I bet they laughed. They laugh because God laughed at Caiaphas and Pilate and Herod and Hitler. They laugh because God laughed at sin and death and hell. They laugh because God laughed at them and their own failure. He laughed at John and his anger problems. Remember John's anger problems in the gospel? He laughed at John and his anger problems. He laughed at Peter and his cowardice. He laughed not because they were less than they knew, but because they were so much more than they even begin to, to, to imagine. Jesus laughed on his throne, and Jesus laughed in the sacred pit that was their own soul. He laughed at them, in them, and with them. John the beloved and Peter the rock. So when God laughs at you, and I think he's revealed this to me in places, it's, it's, I think it's funny, but I think he's, he's laughed at me at times. When God laughs at you, laugh with him. Why? Because, well, because you are so much more than you know. Through laughter, you name Jesus as Lloyd, Lord, join, join the party, and, and you just keep laughter and laughing. La laughter, I think, is the ability to rejoice at the death of your own ego. And you see, that is terrifying from this side of the table.
but it is absolute ecstasy on the other side. It's grace. And so at the table, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. And in the same manner, he took the cup, saying, this is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Oh, this is a table of sorrow and ecstatic and endless joy. See, God is laughing, and he'd like you to laugh with him. So come to the table and receive the promised blessing. You can tear off a piece of it, dip it in the cup, and just ingest it into that pit. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Does God laugh at you? Well, I guess it depends on what you mean by that. But if you think that you are your own accomplishments, if you're proud, yeah, I think so. And no matter what, this is true. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. But it's not an evil laugh. I suspect it looks a little more like this. It's really quite serious. Yes, whatever you do, keep a straight face. Last time it took us three days to get him down. <laughs> I love to laugh <laughs> loud and long and clear. I love to laugh. <laughs> it's getting worse every year. <laughs> the more I laugh, the more I fill with glee. You're no help at all. For the glee. The more I'm a merrier me. It's embarrassing. The more I'm a merrier me. When things strike me as funny, I can't hide it inside and squeak. As the squeakless too, I got to let go with a hoe and a How nice! I was hoping you, Dana. They all would have such a jolly time. We love to laugh. <laughs> love Whoops, don't you two start? Come back down here. Well, I think God is laughing, and he'd like you to join him. I don't mean to spoil the movie, but Mary Poppins even joins them in the end. She repents of her pharisaical ways, and she goes to the ceiling. The table rises, and they have a banquet of laughter together. They have a party together, a tea party together on the ceiling. And you're going to a party, a great banquet. And I suspect that you can only get there through laughter. Angels can fly because they take themselves lightly, <laughs> wrote G.K. Chesterton. You must not take yourself so seriously. In fact, you must lose yourself to find yourself laughing. So sit down right where you are. Just sit down. Close your eyes for a minute. And, and I just invite you to do this. I want you to think of yourself and all your addictions. I want you to think of yourself and your sin. I 
Think of yourself in your sorrow. Think of yourself in all your shit. You're sitting on the end of a bed. Your father sits on the other end of the bed. You're ashamed to even look at him. But downward bends his burning eye. That mystery is so bright. And that's you. And he laughs. <laughs> you have no idea who you are. Look at my hands, look at my feet. I've already judged you. You are worth everything to me and you will inherit everything I have. You'll sit on the throne with me. And we, we, we say, oh, oh, does that mean I can swallow my gum? No! Don't swallow your gum, this is stupid. What it means is that um, his opinion of you is not dependent on whether or not you swallow his gum. His opinion of you was decided uh, the moment he decided to create you. He's your father. And he's good. So believe his word and laugh. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you'd like prayer, members of the prayer team will be down front and they'd love to pray with you. Um, otherwise, we invite you to go downstairs, hang out, talk to folks, but have a wonderful week, all right?